Ta-da. All right, um, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you and praise you for every single opportunity um, to seek your face, to call upon your name, to feel your presence, um, to have you by your spirit illuminate your word. Um, I am totally and completely insufficient, Lord God, as a speaker. I am merely a fallen man, Lord God, with feet of clay. And uh, Lord God, a heart that just like everyone else in the room had to be, Lord God, grabbed a hold of by your divine hands in order to make some receptive to your word. And then, Lord God, you graciously gave gifts to men uh, for, Lord God, the edification of the body, for the perfecting of the saints and making people uh, ready for the work. And we just pray, oh God, that the, the fullness of that, Lord God, plan that you gave for uh, preachers and teachers to the body would uh, work itself out in our midst this morning as we talk about um, disciple-making. Um, this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. My time's up already. <laughs> pray too long. All right, so, um, you know, I'm always uh, doing my absolute best to not just finish the material, because it's not a race or a marathon, but to also make sure that I am um, edifying the body in the best possible way that I can. And just over the years, one of the areas of continual learning I've been preaching since 1997 that I'm just continuing to learn is that I talk extremely fast. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I talk extremely fast. So so just uh, I have been working on talking a lot slower in order to um, uh, increase comprehension, because I told uh, John at the table, I would preach 20 percent shorter if I could feel like I could produce uh, 50 percent more. Uh, comprehension, not just comprehension, but receptivity, or maybe that's not even a word, uh, resonance with you, whatever, right? You get it. Um, and so I am, um, I'm going to be trying that um, uh, this morning or continuing because, again, uh, again, me completing my task is irrelevant if at the end you just go, man, that was, I think that was good, um, but I don't remember any of it. Uh, so uh, I'm going to do my best to, to keep it slow. And uh, and methodical here. And uh, in doing so, I'm going to ask you, I want to my commitment to you is to create time where you can actually ask me questions. I also got some feedback last night that uh, a little bit of the Q&A was probably one of the more meaningful or actually equally as meaningful as the time of delivery. And because of that feedback, my promise to you is I want to create a platform for you to ask me questions. I cannot responsibly do that unless somebody helps me pump the brakes, right? So not just to make sure that I'm not going too fast, but also to tell me when my time is up. So can we as a body, can we covenant on how much time I'm going to use doing all the talking? How much time do you want me to go before I give you a chance to ask questions? Okay, so I'm going to go for 30 minutes and then I'm going to stop, all right? So, but I need a timekeeper because I don't like to pay attention to anything other than like you and the Bible um, when I'm doing that. I have my little phone up here, but that's just not going to work for us. I'll get too distracted. So John is not going to stop me at 30 minutes. Uh, so I would just ask someone else to say, hey, boom, there we go. All right. 30, I have a time. I have a timekeeper. All right. Good. So keep me on track. So, yeah, there we go. Yeah. If I get that little alarm, I'll know that it's time to land the plane. Um, so maybe set the alarm for 28 minutes because I will not come to a dead stop when the alarm goes off. <laughs> right? There we go. <laughs> okay. 
Um, all right, good stuff. So um, just briefly, a little time of review, or not real review, but just kind of at a high level, we're talking about these five or six imperatives of disciple-making. And uh, I mentioned that they were, not necessarily in the order of teaching, but they were um, teaching, um, contending, wrestling, defending, and depending. Right, and I think also through in sanctifying, but that's going to end up being one message when we talk about sanctifying and defending the faith. So these imperatives are, again, teaching, which we covered last night, contending for the faith, uh, defending the faith, sanctifying the faith in our hearts, and then also, I'm going to be talking about today, wrestling. Wrestling. I think this whole idea of wrestling from the book of Ephesians chapter 6, <coughs> verses 12 and following, are, um, are vitally important for us because, as I mentioned last night, um, regardless of how gifted or skilled we believe we are in sharing the gospel, the work is really God's work. And when we're out there sharing the gospel, we are working against unseen forces that are actually competing with the receptivity of the gospel. And it's not just guys who talk too fast, right? There's real spiritual things that are competing with receptivity. Um, but the beautiful thing is that God has made us aware of that. I am regularly impacted by the, what I call the simultaneous strength and beauty of God's word. Its ability not only to prescribe what we should be doing, but also its ability to describe what is going on in our world. So even when I see events, when someone rejects a presentation of the gospel, the Bible has already described that for me. It is already prescribed that that's going to happen, that there are going to people, be people who will not tolerate sound doctrine. That there will be folks who will reject um, the truth. And when I even, so even when I see people reject the truth, it reminds me of the faithfulness, the faithful witness of God's word. And I want to just kind of share that with you, that there are things that are happening unseen. And as we strengthen our faith in the word of God, it continuously helps our heart to be encouraged to, to be encouraged in the task of disciple making and not be disappointed when it doesn't quite go our way. And so... Um, Today we're going to talk about wrestling. Let's read the passage here in Ephesians chapter six, verses. Um, ah, let's just start with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to with which you will be able to quench all all not some not a few but all the fiery darts of the wicked one and then to also take and to take uh, the helmet of salvation the sword of the spirit which is the word of god and then it tells us also once we're fully suited up that we should be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints Now, this call of putting on the whole armor is delivered to the believer. But in putting on the whole armor, I believe that there is also a statement of disciple making that is inherent because we've also heard the Apostle Paul talk to his um, disciple Peter in previous texts when he says, uh, be a good soldier 
in Christ. Be a good soldier in the Lord. So we notice this whole idea of soldiering is a part of our disciple-making armament. So we are not just told to go out and indiscriminately make disciples. We are told to put on the whole armor. And I keep saying the word whole, and I hope you hear it loud and clear with a certain degree of redundance for that purpose. I asked the uh, saints at Gospel Hope um, rhetorically, how many of you, if uh, someone said that they were going to war and they just said, all I need today is the helmet because uh, I'm going to be in a bunker and all the shots are just going to be going overhead. How many of you would think that person is ridiculous? We all would. Or if that person said, well, hey, listen, my enemy is short, so I'm just going to wear the breastplate of righteousness. I'm not worried about my head today. Or how many of you, uh, you know, work in an industrial context, if someone says, I'm going to put on my um, my I'm going to put on my PPE, not the glasses, just the shoes. I just want any steel to drop on my toes. You would think this person is ridiculous. Right. And so and why is that? Because when it comes to kind of the battle, we can't predict where the attacks come from. We may be able to see them coming. We may know the nature of our enemy, uh, but we don't know exactly where we'll be impacted the most. And so. Um, I want to answer a couple of questions today. Number one, do we understand what we are fighting for? Right. The Bible says that we are we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But do we really understand what we are fighting for when it comes to um, these uh, these imperatives that we should be wrestling uh, for the faith or we should be wrestle? Or we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I think the Bible is relatively clear in this regard, that the church is either absent, oblivious or active in the battle. The church is either absent from the battle. We're just not involved. We are oblivious. We're fully there, but we just have no idea what's going on. And we don't understand, you know, why we're just taking it on the chin or we are actively involved. But we're there. We're somewhere on the battlefield. And so I want us to be um, fully active and I want us to be fully clothed for the battle of disciple making and the great work that God has for us in the church. So when we look at the various pieces of armor, I believe that each piece of the armor speaks to some aspect of what we are fighting for and what we are fighting about. I want us to walk through them methodically. You've all heard them before, right? So you've got, you know, being girt, we have your, your loins girt with truth, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shot with the gospel of peace, wearing the shield of faith, uh, or have taken up the shield of faith, putting on the helmet of salvation, and also taking up the sword of the spirit. Well, are these just beautiful and colorful metaphors, or are they attached to some practical reality? And I believe that they are attached to some real practical realities that impact the way we make disciples. And so uh, one of the first practical realities uh, uh, is this, that when it comes to the uh, uh, wrestling with respect to the truth that we should gird our loins with, where is truth actively under attack in our day? Where is truth under attack? When it, when it comes to disciple making, one of the areas where truth is under attack is in the area of the advancements of moral relativity. Everybody know what that is? It's like, well, that's your truth. That's why you go to Brantford. Or that's your truth. That's why you're a Christian. That's your truth. But here's my truth, right? Has anybody heard that in the process of disciple making? So there is a battle for truth. There is a battle around the definition of truth. And so um, I want you to consider the reality of an animal that is caged. Um, Jesus tells us that uh, you shall know the truth and the truth will do what? It will set you free. Well, that's kind of an odd statement. I would think keys would set me free. Right. But how does truth set us free? What does it free us from? Well, truth frees us from uh, faulty definitions. Uh, it frees us from in, in the Christian context. It frees us from uh, the bondage of our past. It frees us from sin. 
Uh, it frees us from lies that often keep us uh, in bondage to certain behaviors. So when we talk about truth, uh, we should be actively in, involved in the battle for truth. Jesus says that truth will actually set people free. I want you to consider just for a moment what happens to an animal that is born in captivity, right? It is indeed a lion. Uh, and there are certain things to a lion born in captivity that are natural and normal. Uh, but once that lion is freed from that captivity, they immediately realize that, oh, I'm not really ready for this life. There is a certain there's a certain uh, if that animal were to interpret life uh, in the wild as they did while they were in bondage, they would literally be devoured. They don't understand because they were born in captivity. Well, that is the condition of every one of us. We are born in sin, in the captivity of sin. And so our reality of what is natural and normal is shaped by that captivity. That's why truth or that's why we need to be freed from that. And so, in other words, we are trying to share the gospel with or engage with and making disciples among people who, just like ourselves, formerly their entire context was shaped by a lack of real freedom as God desired for us to have it. And the part of that bondage actually comes from lies. And here is the here are the most pervasive lies in our culture that we need to be prepared to make disciples over against or make disciples out from this. This is kind of the fabric of that's happening in our culture. Number one, there are lies. Um, People do not believe that total forgiveness is possible. People do not believe that total forgiveness is possible. They may say it with their mouths, but we can hear how people talk about themselves. One of the number one reasons that we see, I, number one is strong because I don't have a, any training in this. One of the most prevailing reasons that I see people who struggle deeply with depression is a failure to forgive oneself. Or a failure to believe that the conditions that resulted in how they feel and where they are can actually be totally resolved. There are lies that prevail in our culture that true and real and thorough and complete forgiveness, being totally absolved of anything that holds me guilty, that real forgiveness is not possible. So what we do is we run from those things that we don't like about ourselves or we try to escape. But we do not believe that real forgiveness is possible. When I say we, I I oftentimes move in and out between talking about us and talking about culturally. So here are the lies we need to be free from. Uh, that real forgiveness is not possible, that real change is not possible. How do I know this? Well, if you hear the conversation around our politicians, if a politician does something today that uh, is racist, well, we say or if we find out from some a politician's past that they did something was racist. We say, well, that person is always always has been and always will be a racist. We say that change is not possible unless, of course, it's us. Right. So you see the lies that prevail in our culture. So there is a belief, there is a lie out there that real change is not possible, that real forgiveness is not possible. And even when we look at how we have a tendency as a culture to hold grudges, we obviously don't think real forgiveness is possible. But how, where do we get that reality from? From the cage that we live in. Because we are not totally and completely forgiving. And because we are not experiencing real change, we interpret the world through our cage, through our captivity. Right. That's what we've been doing. So that's why the culture is operating under a lie or a lack of truth that real forgiveness is not possible, that real change is not possible. And guess what? That real freedom from the past is not possible. And there's also another lie that's pervasive, and that is that truth is not knowable, that real truth is not knowable. So because we don't believe real truth, we as a culture believe that real truth is not knowable. We give up on the pursuit of objective moral truth. Right. So these are the lies that are pervasive in our culture. So then what should we do? We, as the body of Christ, should be living out these truths 
Now, what does it look like to live a life that would contrast these lies? So we should live out the truth that real change is possible, real forgiveness is possible, real transformation is possible, and that we can be truly free from our past. How do we live that out? How can we in a practical way model that? Here's how. By living a life that is grudgeless, transformed, victorious, and consistent. That sounds challenging, but that's why we're not doing this on our own. We live lives that are grudgeless. So let me just say this, um, guys and gals, um, as we are in the marketplace or in our various spaces, when we complain about the historic things that our spouses have done, or we're regularly revisiting things that someone else in our past has done against us, are we modeling a grudgeless life? If we, if we regularly revel in the, um, the nastiness of our past and we find ourselves and people see in our eyes that we light up when we talk about the sinful things that we used to do, are we modeling a life that is transformed? Right? When we, um, uh, when we talk about victory, do people often hear about our victory over the things that used to hold us? So let's speak a little bit more positively. Are there things that the Lord has delivered you from? working your heart against, and are we regularly socializing that victory? Uh, we're in the season of March Madness, and anyone that is winning their games, uh, they're celebrating that. They're regularly conversating around that, uh, their, their victories. And I would just ask us that are we regularly socializing the great victory that God is creating and producing in our life? And are we doing it on a consistent basis? So one of the great challenges for the church as being um, the flag wavers of truth is that people would often... Um, accuse us of not being consistent, not being consistent, that you don't live for the things that you say that you actually stand for or you don't flesh them out. And so this is just a call for us that if we're going to have our loins girt with truth, these are the truths that we're called to. If you are people who have truly been forgiven, truly been free from the past, truly do have a transformative power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and work within our lives, then we should gird our lives up and we should be modeling a life that is grudgeless, transformed, victorious and consistent. These are the practical behaviors that actually would enable us to be better disciple makers. OK. Um, verse 14 B tells us that we should put on the breastplate of righteousness. What are we at battle with in the culture? What are we fighting for? Uh, we are fighting for reclaiming the definition that real righteousness is not self-righteousness, but it is actually a salvific righteousness. Please forgive me on the fancy word you. Salvific just means that it is the kind of righteousness that actually produces salvation and not just the kind of personal morality that produces bragging rights. So every person in here who truly is a follower or a believer of Jesus Christ You have no righteousness of your own. You have trusted him and he has given you that righteousness. Now, here's the question. Has God given us any cultural reflections of that? So I'm a huge advocate of the fact that if God expects us to make disciples and share the gospel that embedded within the culture, he gives us these ready made mini series that we can kind of hang that truth on to. Right. I call it um, uh, uh, just kind of these gospel windows and mirrors of of, of sorts um, or gospel reflections. And there are a few. So when it comes to uh, let me give you an idea of how we can beautifully illustrate in our disciple making process the beauty of righteousness that is received by imputation. That is, God changed our status and made us righteous. We didn't have a righteousness of our own. Here's where this is beautifully depicted in the current cultural conversation. This is front page regular dialogue that you can immediately enter into when you talk about the immigration process. When We talk about immigration. Here it is. 
there are a variety of different people potentially in this room and definitely in this city. Uh, there are people who were born here. There are people who were brought here and there are people who broke in. Right. People who were born here. Those of us who are who have the status of an American citizen because we were born here. Right. That's our status. There are those of us who were brought here. Um, we weren't born here, but our parents brought us here. And just kind of when we became aware, either we became naturalized citizens uh, or either we're in the dreamer program and we're trying to get there. We're doing something. But there are those who were born here. And there are those who are brought here. And then there are those who are coming over the wall, who are hiding in trucks, who are sneaking in. And we refer to them as illegal immigrants. Right. And there are people who broke in. But all of them are in quest for the same thing. All three groups want the same thing. They want the status of being an American citizen. Now, what's interesting is that your status as an American citizen is not contingent on your patriotism or how many American things you do, is it? Like, are we, uh, those of us who were born here, brought, if you are a citizen of the United States of America, are you getting calls from, from the main office saying, we, we're looking here, and over the last 10 years, you've only said the Pledge of Allegiance four times. We want to have a conversation. Can you come down to Washington? Uh, your citizenship is at risk. Uh, uh, it, people who don't pay their taxes. I mean, one of the most American things that there is. Is there anybody who's getting deported for not paying their taxes? No, your citizenship is not at risk. You understand? So in other words, your status as a citizen is not contingent upon what? Your performance as a citizen. That is exactly what it means to be a believer. You are imputed. You can only become a believer by way of being reborn, being adopted and being grafted in. Right. So no one is born a Christian by natural circumstances. We all know that this is the mature room in terms of the details of the faith. But what I'm trying to paint is a picture of how we could enter into the conversation of immigration and actually see a great illustration of how it is that a group of people could claim to be righteous and it not be performance based. Because that's one of the great challenges, right? When you're out trying to share the gospel, people push back and say, well, you aren't perfect. You aren't righteous. You're right. Just like I am not the most patriotic person on the planet when it comes to my country, but I am fully American because I was born or either I was adopted. Right. I'm not an illegal alien. Well, then here's the deal. What's an illegal alien? A person who expects to participate in the full benefits and privileges of what it means to be an American, but not be born here or to not be naturalized into the process of citizenship. So in other words, people in our country are arguing over and are blue in the face or red in the face, depending on kind of your, your ethnicity, what you turn when you're arguing. But, <laughs> but the burgundy, right? Uh, but, but the deal is we all understand what it, what it means for a person to, yes, have all the good works, right? What's the great argument for the illegal immigrant? Well, they're here doing great work, right? And we say, well, that still doesn't equal citizenship. It's a, it's a good look, but it doesn't equal citizenship. Well, guess what? The same applies to us in the body of Christ. So it is not a it is it is not an anomaly for us to hold up a standard from a Christian perspective that says doing good Christian things doesn't change your status before God. So we work not because we're trying to earn our status. We work because we're thankful for our status. Right. If I'm a patriot here in the United States, I reflect my patriotism because I'm thankful for the status that I have, not because I'm trying to gain or renew it. 
Therefore, we have this beautiful platform in order to redefine righteousness for our culture who really doesn't understand the word. So righteousness is not a self-righteousness in the body of Christ. It is a salvific righteousness when it's understood. Performance matters, again, as a function of thankfulness, not as a statement of worthiness. Our righteousness as body as members in the body of Christ does not make us worthy of salvation. It's just a reflection of our thankfulness. And every American citizen can identify with that, especially if they're a, a super patriot. Right. I mean, even for the team. Right. I mean, you got this guy. Never mind. Uh, I won't get in there on, on what this guy does. Um, but anyway, uh, the next piece of the armor, the gospel of peace. When we talk about the gospel of peace, that's an interesting um, attachment, the gospel of peace. Why the gospel of peace? Why should my feet be shod with the gospel of peace? Why not the gospel of fill in the blank with anything? But the gospel of peace is an interesting uh, indicator here um, because we're talking about peace and the kind of peace that the gospel provides is in response to sin. Right. There is sin. It, it was there is a natural breakdown in relationship between the creator and the creature between the creature and the creation, and between the creature and the creature. Let me explain those. The natural breakdown that exists between us is that, obviously, we are at a, at a distance and a disagreement and at some level of, of disassociation between us and God, between the creature and the creator. That's me and God. That's us and God, you and God. But then there's also a breakdown between the creature and the creation. Like we saw in the Garden of Eden that because of the fall, that there is this disrupted balance between us and the stuff that we're responsible for. Like, you know, our planet is just not working right. And that's part of sin being here in the world. Right. Dogs bark at us. They don't kneel to us. You know, even the ones that belong to us. You know, if if push come to shove, they, you know, get us too. Right. And so the creature, the creation isn't working in a full sense of harmony. These are the evidences of sin. Now, the disciple, the, the, the target audience for our for, for, for disciple making, they don't speak that language. But you and I should be able to see that language. We should be able to see the evidence of that. But also creature to creature. I mean, the great breakdowns in our culture is that people don't know how to treat each other well. These are all evidences of sin. So the Bible has given us that prescription. So while our world may never see the need for the gospel of peace, they do see the need for peace. They absolutely see it. How do they see it? Because the prevailing discussions in social media and every other platform are these. The brokenness of our systems. I'm talking about structures and governments and economies. Right. What's the great complaint? Man, like people don't know if I mean, they they enjoy the benefits of capitalism. But man, they're 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 negatively impacted by the fact that there is the the person who spends twenty thousand dollars on a watch and the person who is living under a bridge. Like, how can those two people live in the same zip code? But they do. And so we see the brokenness in our systems, like capitalism. We see brokenness in our systems. Like, we can't seem to find a proper balance between our entitlement programs. Like, what level of responsibility should the rich have for the poor? Or should we have welfare? Should we have Social Security? Like, we often are always acquainted with, in our culture, the brokenness in our systems, the structures that we build. These are the evidences of the fact that we are fallen, and even the things that we build, even when they're functioning at their best, they still have flaws. God has given us the, the brokenness of systems as a witness as to why we still are on a great quest for peace. There's just certain things that aren't working even when they're working best or working well. We have, fought, we have the brokenness of our systems. We have the burden of societal ills, the burden of societal ills, right? It's like, man, um, uh, you know, our, our, our toes ball up in our shoes every time we hear about a, a police officer having to shoot someone. We don't know what to wish for. 
Oh man, it's, well, what city is it going to be in? Ooh, that's going to be an issue. Oh, was it black and white? Ooh, that's going to be an issue. Was the cop black? Okay, that's a little bit better. I mean, look at what our heart has done, right? Like we've gotten to a point where, where there, there's a burden of societal ills where our desire for the best is like the, that the, we know that the brokenness isn't going away, so it's like, ooh, well, let's just hope for the right equation so that this doesn't produce a riot around the corner for me, or that I don't have to have this uncomfortable conversation at work. So we have, we have the brokenness of systems, we also have the burden of societal ills, but we also have the classic battle between good and evil that is occurring within the self. Battle of good and evil. Now, even our constituents in the world may not even use the terms good and evil because it sounds too mysterious and hokey. But we do recognize that man within us, the Bible says that within us, there is this rage. There is this war between good and evil. Every single human being, regardless of how honest and prepared to be, recognize that there are things within us that we wish we did not think that we did not want. And we can't understand why even on our best day that we would think of ourselves as a good person. Why would I even entertain this? Do you know what that is? It's the brokenness of sin. It is the battle between good and evil, the burden of societal ills, and also the brokenness of systems. It is the human desperate cry for peace that can only be brought by uh, the gospel. So here's the deal. We, as a society, we preach the gospel, as, excuse me, as a community, as a Christian community, we should be preaching or sharing the gospel of peace because that is God's answer for those brokennesses. Even if they will not hear them in terms of that language, hearing and receptivity is not your job. Your job is saying the Bible always tells us that our job is simply to say the gospel, to share the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict and move people along the continuum of conformity and curiosity. Your job is just to put it out there. Your job is just to order. How many of you? How many of you? I mean, is it spring here yet? What's going on? What is this? What is this called? It's New England. It's New England, right. But when you plant something, let me ask you this. You go out and you and you plant and you do your thing. Do you go out to the yard on a weekly basis and dig up seeds and try to force them to grow and speak to them? No, you don't. You let the seed inherently does what it does. And you know that if you keep tampering with it, it won't do what it does. Your job is just to keep spraying it. What happens when you find an area of the lawn or area of the yard or wherever you plant things, when you find an area that isn't growing the way that you want to, what do you do? You water and you throw more seed. You apply, do I need more sun? But you don't dig it up and talk to the seeds again. And what I'm asking us to do is to be confident in the inherent power of the seed. We don't take it personally when our grass does not grow. We say, okay, well, there's something going on with the soil or some of the other conditions. I'm just going to lean back. But I've done my job. I've tilled and I've planted. All right. And so we need to get operate with that same confidence in God's word that he says will not return to him void. So here's the deal. When it comes to us sharing the gospel of peace, we also need to be in the business of showing the gospel of peace. So if we're talking about the brokenness of systems, the uh, burden of uh, the burden of societal ills and the battle between good and evil. What does that look like against the backdrop of my own life? You see, the transformed life looks more like I'll say this. The transformed life looks more like having a baby than it does riding a bus. Have you heard me say this before? The transformed life looks more like having a baby than riding a bus in the world. When we talk about transformation that the gospel brings, many people will go, well, well, if the gospel is so true, why isn't it doing this right now? Because the transformation of life, the gospel is organic in its work. The transformation looks more like having a baby than it does riding a bus. Now, what do you mean? When I ride a bus, I go out to a stop, I get picked up, 
And all the people get picked up on a bus and the same people who were the same that they were from when they got picked up get taken or translated or transported to a destination and they dropped off. And they're the same people. But life in the gospel is not translation. It's transformation. What happens when you have a baby? Everything changes, right? You aren't just moving from uh, one kid to two or seven to eight or eight to nine. You aren't just moving, right? You, you are becoming something. There's something actually happening in the, in the life. I mean, mommy's body is transforming. The baby is actively transforming. The, the, in the body of Christ, the gospel works in us more like having a baby than it does riding a bus. In other words, there is a methodical, transformative work that we would not want to skip any of the steps. Because when we skip steps, in the most crude um, uh, analogy of the baby is a what? A miscarriage. And so as we would. And so so the Lord has embedded within the culture a beautiful example of these things. So I want to talk about. um, So as I'm landing the plane here and wrapping up just a little bit um, again, truth, what are we fighting for? The the, the thrust of this message is what are we fighting for when it comes to these elements of the, the armor? I don't believe any of them are arbitrary or just illustrative. They are pointing to something particular in culture. Truth is pointing at moral relativity. Righteousness is pointing at uh, salvation by grace as opposed to um, uh, by self-righteousness. The gospel is pointing at the desperate need for peace in our culture. Uh, The shield of faith is is drawing us to a place of uh, having trust in God and not just optimism. And the helmet of salvation is moving us past bucket lists and our, our best life now to actually living a blessed life, a real blessed life. And then, of course, you know what? I'll save this for our second session because I've got three more of them. That's what we'll do. So I'm going to pause now and take some questions as part of my promise. This is your time. So when, um, when Craig told the apostles when he, when he said, well, make disciples, and when they go into, into certain uh, towns and they didn't listen and shake the thing off their stand on the go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. But, but and I and I think the way we shake off the sand is to while we may um, while we may shift gears in the way that we're sharing, um, we're not um, uh, disavowing or disassociation with with that person. When we have close proximity, you know, with someone, I think uh, we always it's incumbent on us to just continue to pray for them. Uh, knowing that we've shared and we've and we've put the gospel out there. Um, I can't give you like a timeline. I can't say whether or not it's, man, I've been sharing the gospel for five years or I have planted 15, 20 seeds. I don't know that timetable or that template, uh, but I believe that the Lord um, gives us, uh, by his grace, just comes some kind of awareness of, uh, of that time. But I would also temper this. I would temper my, my answer with this. Um, how long was the Lord willing to work on us before he finally broke through? Right. I don't know how many years that was. I don't know how, you know, for, for each one of us, I have no idea. I don't know what, how many, you know, episodes of sliding back into porn. I don't know how many times. I don't know how many, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, seasons of, of, of going over to, you know, I don't know, the kingdom hall or bowing down to an idol God. I don't know how long the Lord works. So. So I think the template that the Lord also gives us in, in many regards is uh, when, when one of his opponents in the audience asked, well, how many times should we forgive? Right. So I believe that it is a work of uh, it's a work of discernment. 
But uh, even when we've actively set our peace, I think we can continue to pray, even if that relationship has gotten so tenuous that we, can, we don't feel like we can continue to share. Did I help you? Yeah. Yes, sir. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Lord has given us these powerful examples of just how, again, His word will not return void. And, and the beauty of that is God's definition of void is His words who simply serve as a witness as to what you missed and why you won't enter the kingdom. Because the, there'll be no one who stands before the throne of God who's doing like this. What? What you talking about? You know what I mean? So there is a so the word both witnesses both to the positive and to the um, to the proof of God's righteousness even in judgment. And uh, but it's not our job to determine which way that that seed's going to manifest its uh, its uh, its performance, so to speak. So, so uh, again, I, I think when we witness, we do so with a couple of core convictions in hand. Um, so I'm a, I'm a believer, based on what the Bible says, that wherever God's way is not being done, that there's always going to be inherent dysfunction. So I believe that um, just a transgender lifestyle and any other lifestyle that doesn't match what God says, it's ultimately dysfunctional. And uh, all I have to do is look hard enough, and I see some of those fundamental dysfunctions. So when I got into um, LGBTQ conversations 
within the workplace. One of the things that I found was an interesting discovery is that there wasn't even agreement amongst the, the community along that spectrum as to how they wanted to be referred to or what they thought was real, authentic homosexuality. I've actually had these conversations. And so I was prepared to have the full-on conversation. Actually, there was a woman who was gay, um, and she was marrying another woman, but she had an issue with men who were effeminate. And so I was like, oh, okay, now that's a logical, that's a conundrum. What, based on what standard, based on what standard do you have an issue with a man who is carrying himself in a feminine way? And I also look at the other conundrums within the relationship. Like I've always been intrigued and I have no problem asking uh, folks that will let me get in their life in this way. I said, um, if gender doesn't matter, why is it that in a same-sex relationship, one of you is always wearing khakis and a sweater and the other one is wearing a blouse? And I'm not trying to be crude, but there's always this, 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 this dynamic that you're still trying to illustrate the male-female dynamic. And define for me, separate from, let's just go hard in the paint, separate from what you look like below the belt, define for me why that is a functional necessity in your relationships. Because I believe that sin always produces gross dysfunction, both, uh, both in the performance of, of a thing and also just kind of in the mentality. And when you begin to point out some of those, you create issues. And then I would just, I, don't, I gladly would just step back and say, and that's, and that's why. Because of your inability to answer that question, that's why I believe that this model of one man, one woman is, is what works. When it comes to the transgender community, I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the, the emerging phenomenon is trans regret right now. There are folks that have uh, completed the process and are regretting that they've ever done it. And now they've reached a point of no return because, the, you, know, you know, one of the differences between, um, you know, for a person that, has struggled with and decides to pursue a life of full-on homosexuality, if they reach a point of saying, man, this doesn't represent God's best or this doesn't represent God's ideal, and they decide to repent from that, no harm, no foul, so to speak. But when you've decided to spend money and you know, go to various treatments and, and you go the surgical route, man, there's certain things that you've done that are irreversible. So what you're also seeing, and I know that this is a heavy-handed conversation, but what you're also seeing, I didn't give you time for like the, the Q&A today. When is that supposed to end? Um, <laughs> but, what, but, but what I'm also seeing is um, a, um, um, a tendency of people not to complete the transgender process just in case they get cold feet and need to walk it back. And no one's talking about that. And so, um, and so the word of God not returning to him void, it's more like having a baby than it is riding a bus. All you've got to do is wait the appropriate amount of time and some of the inherent dysfunctions immediately begin to manifest. You're going to have a whole generation of children who are going to grow up. Right now they're just having fun, but they've got same-sex parents, and they're going to eventually start to graduate in mass, or they're going to start coming through the school system, and you're going to be seeing a whole manifestation of behavioral issues and gender confusion um, that we, can't, we can only speak to in theory, but soon the Lord will give us witness in practice. Mm -hmm. I would already consider myself to be because they're so uh, ingrained in the gospel that they you know, understand. Yeah. And he's actually taking this person and he's a single individual, so he's not bringing somebody into his household. But what I was surprised was I got to stop limiting myself of already feeling like I'm defeated in right. some scenarios because we do go out and do open air in some scenarios. And mm -hmm. If I were to run across one of those individuals, I'd be a, you know, more apprehensive and like, all right, 
share the gospel then and have some hardcore people that have changed and come to know the Lord. Absolutely. So I got to more or less stop the demon myself when I do. I don't know if you can embrace that and add to that a little bit. I can. I can. Absolutely I can. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, um, John, you hold me accountable for this. So I've created a uh, Jehovah's Witness Bible study called Just for Witnesses where I've gone through and I've looked at all of these various passages and I've used their Bible so that I can go through even the passages that have been modified and show how functionally um, the Holy Spirit has to be a person um, and that the whole Godhead is fully participating in redemption in a way that's, that you cannot deny that they're the same or either our Bibles are broken. One of the things that I like about the Jehovah's Witnesses is they would say to themselves, they would say of themselves that they are people of the book. And so during an argument, when we reach a conundrum, I always go, well, hey, both of our Bibles seem to point out this reality. What are you going to do? Um, uh, the Lord uh, created a unique opportunity for me as well. I actually do invite witnesses into my home. Uh, I had a group come by one day. I was in the lawn and I said, you know, Lord, I'm going to go the distance and I'm going to let them dictate the pace of the conversation. They gave me their book. It had 14 lessons. And it said, which one would you like to, to go over? I said, I want to go over all of them. And I, I showed them my hand. I told them who I was. And I said, let's start with lesson one. And what I would do is I would study in advance. They had questions in the back and at the end. And I would go through it. So this is how I developed my material. I went through and just kind of uh, each week developed a series of questions. Um, and then they, um, they did get upset with me. Um, they said that I was all about debate. And I said, OK, here's what I'll do then. My questions I will say for the end of Bible study but you must answer them when you come back. And so I'm going to give them to you on paper. And I'm going to give you all the material that I created. Um, so if you, if you want to do this, you can. Um, because the material is just kind of self, it's just kind of self-walking. Like, these are questions that you have to answer for me. For instance, one of them and I'll, uh, is um, just as an overemphasis on the name of Jehovah, which literally drops off the page, come Malachi, right? And then you get into the New Testament, and it's like, Simple, plain and simple. There is no name under heaven by which a person can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says that you need to baptize in his name, that and the Father of the, uh, and, of, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul says that in their Bible, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, um, right in, in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus Christ. And I was like, well, what is the, the confession of tongue and the bending of knees? What is all that? Revelation chapter 15 um, people are bowing down. The elders and all these creatures, angelic and, and non-angelic, are bowing down to the lamb. Who's the lamb? Right. And so because and, and so uh, and, and so all of these things are apparent in their Bible as well. And um, Jehovah's Witnesses are not anybody can be smarter than you. That's irrelevant. They are just robotically trained to work through certain texts in the moment. And, and here's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. As smart as I would like to think of myself, in all of my preparation for them, the Lord did his best work through something that I didn't prepare for, which was awesome. You know, it would, it, we, would, we would be talking, and I would, it would, there would be just some random comment about the Holy Spirit. And then I found out, I was like, wow, you guys aren't really confident that you're saved. I was like, I was like you, you know, so I, I'm, I'm going to start rambling here, and I don't want to do that. But there's some material um, that I'd love to, to get into your hands. I'll, I'll send it through the, uh, the elders or whoever or you or I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you get it. it's called just for witnesses. And it's just a series of conversations that I've had with them where I say, hey, let's walk through these. You tell me what you see. This isn't me versus you. This is you versus the Bible. And it, and it creates some real opportunity. And um, they're like and the number one statement that I get is I'm gonna have to get back with you on that.
Awesome. Well, the irony, too, is they used to use the King James Bible up mm. until the late 40s, yep. or the 50s, and then they made their own translation as well. They did. And that's why I decided to use their translation to create my study, because it shows that their translation lacks inspiration. Because if it was the Holy Spirit going through and making the modifications, he wouldn't be missing stuff. You know, <laughs> he can. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, hey, I think it's time for us to take a break. And uh, let's do that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the material that we've covered so far. We look forward to our time of break. We just pray that your word is saturating our heart with, uh, um, Lord God, the necessary seeds that we need to be effective in disciple making. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.